Hello and welcome to episode 147 of the Cognicast, the podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. This week we have a fascinating conversation that Karen Meyer recorded with computational artist David Schmoody. But before we get started, I do have a few announcements. There's still time to purchase a ticket to Closure Conch 2018. Well, maybe. We're really close to capacity, so don't delay. Sadly, Intro to Closure and the Day of Datomic Cloud workshops are sold out. But go on over to closure-conj.org to see if there are conference tickets left. In other news, the Sydney, Australia, Closure User Group meets on Tuesday, November 27th at 6.30. Go on over to meetup.com clj-syd for all the details. If you have a Closure-related event you'd like us to mention, drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. I would also like to add that while this interview was recorded in very late August, I'm recording this intro just before Thanksgiving Day here in the United States. And in that spirit, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who's ever been connected with the Cognicast, starting with you, the listener, but also everyone who's ever hosted, edited, done some cover art, written some show notes, or anything else associated with the podcast. From the bottom of my heart, thank you all for being part of this. And with that, we'll move on to David and Karen in episode 147 of the Cognicast. Take two. <laughs> oh, welcome, everyone. Today is August 30th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Karen Meyer, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome David Schmoody to the show. Thank you for being with us. Yeah. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, I, I usually don't read, um, you know, kind of bios on, on the on the show, but you have such a great bio and introduction that I, I just felt compelled to read it because. Gets me so excited <laughs> about it. Cool. Um, so th- this is this is your your bio. Um, you're a computational artist and a storyteller who creates experiences that examine the everyday realities of our post digital society. Over the last fifteen years, you've installed interactive work at the Center for Holographic Arts in New York City, projected video art at the Shusev Museum of Architecture in Moscow and performed at the Chicago Museum of Contemporary Art, screened at the Chinese Theater in Los Angeles, and given talks around the world. That's fantastic. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all true, astonishingly. But uh... <laughs> So uh, wh- where are you in the world right now? Uh, I'm based in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, great. Um, and I, I guess, is it, is it sweltering hot there right now? Because it's sweltering hot here in Cincinnati. Yeah, um, we have the pleasure of this heat wave as much as you. The only advantage we have is New York smells like hot garbage in the summer, so because it's all on the curb. But yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, 
I'm really excited too because we have this um, traditional question. If, if you've listened to the Cognicast before, that we ask mm-hmm. everyone about an experience of art, whatever that means to you. <laughs> and you have such a wealth of a background and and dealing with art that I'm. Please tell us of an experience of art that that is meaningful to you. Yeah, obviously there are. Um, I could talk about a, a lot of different things, uh, but the thing that like when I thought about the question that really came to the forefront is a uh, film and it's a movie called Andrei Rublev by the filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. Uh, he's a Russian filmmaker, Soviet era, uh, cinema. And actually it just, um, a new print just, uh, unspooled at uh, the Lincoln center here in New York this week. And so I watched it again last night <laughs> at the theater. Uh, but the first time I saw it was over 20 years ago. And um, it was, I really, I didn't know you could make movies like that. I mean, it was so profoundly different than anything I'd ever seen before. Um, and it just, it just uh, blew me away. Um, and then it came back in my life like a decade later. I watched it and it really it features the work of Andrei Rublev as the like, protagonist, who's a Russian icon painter in medieval times. And um, what was so impactful about it the second time through uh, is um, just Tarkovsky's sort of like uh, um, journey as an artist and um, Rublev's journey as an artist and how they parallel each other and like what you can learn from other artists' biographies, or um, I can even expand it further to other biographies of creative types, be it like language implementa- uh, implementers or, you know, uh, people that work on like unique software packages or whatever. Um, and it's really fundamentally about having a voice and uh, what you want to do or can do with that voice. So I, I guess it, did it make it more impactful to you because of the time elapsed in your life experience as well? Yeah, I, I think so. I think um, the fact that it was like a formative uh, experience in my life when I was young, and then it came back around in another period of my life where there was a lot of transition. Um, and it kind of, yeah, keeps reappearing in my life that way. So I have a pretty close relationship to that one particular uh, film. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I haven't seen that one, so now I'm going to put it on my list. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you have uh, plenty of rest and sleep. It's black and white, three hours long. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, foreign language, so <laughs> it's not for the sleepy. <laughs> okay, I'll make sure I'm prepared. So you, do you have uh, a background in some, I know you have background in arts, but is film filmography, is, is that part of it? Uh, yeah, it's kind of an unusual road. Um, my, my formal education, um, was in computer science as an undergrad. And, uh, before that I was, you know, in high school I was hacking computers and stuff like that, but also interested in painting and whatnot. And so I studied a lot of art in, um, in my undergrad. And then, um, I went to Northwestern for my master's and, got a degree in music. <laughs> uh, and then after that, I graduated um, and 
the landscape for programming wasn't exactly, we can get into this later, but wasn't exactly appealing to me and ended up uh, working as an artist while teaching um, college part-time in Chicago. So I did that for 10 years. Um, and in that era, I, I worked in the film industry uh, primarily. Wow. <laughs> okay, yeah. so, so I feel like I want to back up. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so, so computer programming. So that was the, the initial um, degree that you did, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so for, from that point, were you doing music at the same time and computer programming and you just felt like you wanted to concentrate more on the arts? Or how did that combine? Yeah, that, that's sort of it. Um, well, it this is pretty relevant to our audience, so I'll just kind of cut to this chase. I mean, it, part of what happened was um, I was really lucky to go to this school um, in Iowa called uh, University of Northern Iowa, and I got to study under uh, Eugene Weinford, and we had this, like, um, AI track. And when I was... A, a junior there, I was introduced to Lisp, and like in the AI track, of course. And you know, I liked programming okay, and I was kind of like I was okay at it. You know, I was yeah, I was okay at it. Um, definitely not the best hacker in my class, but I was decent. Um, but then I found Lisp, and it was just like, oh, this all makes sense. Like this makes like perfect sense it was just it was a bolt of lightning for me it was crazy and um anyway uh i had i had kind of a, a choice at the end of my time there and the choice was do i continue to stay in academia and maybe do some some more lisp or do i try to like get a job in lisp coming out of like in the industry and that seemed kind of implausible um, this is during the browser wars at the time and like everything was going online and yada yada. This is the late nineties, early aughts. And anyway, I decided I did not want to stay in academia and, um, I wanted to like, you know, work more as an artist and, and do some, you know, technical, uh, technically sort of like savvy art artwork. Um, what happened was I ended up staying, I ended up getting the master's, and then uh, to this day, I still teach in academia. So currently, I'm teaching at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, uh, New Jersey. That's so, that's so cool. So what, what yeah. are you teaching there? Oh, well, that's also kind of funny. Um, I'm currently teaching a class just started this week called Cyberspace and National Security. And um, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate to uh, work with... Or, kind of meet somebody in LA that ended up at Stevens. Uh, he's a brilliant professor. And um, anyways, he ended up needing to work on some other stuff. So I took over his classes. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So, so going back to the list thing, because it's, it's, yeah. it's relevant. So what, what is exactly. it about, because there's a lot of people, I don't know if it's like something with the music background or the arts background or what it was that appealed that just spoke to you? Well, I, I think part of it is this, I, this hubris that we have to think that we can model the world, right? And this is like the premise of like 
OOP thinking, this is one of the premises at least, is like we're going to build models of like what we're trying to represent, right? Um, and like this works in small systems, of course. And of course, functional programming has problems scaling as well, like has issues um, around scaling. But um, it's really hard to reason about a model or world of any significant complexity, right? And so um, it always, working on larger OOP systems never really clicked with me, never made sense because it's like, I kind of understand this little corner I'm in, but like, I don't really understand the decisions that went into this and I don't really understand this model that someone else created. And so because um, it just felt so artificial, whereas uh, functional programming and LISPs in general is just you're passing data around. And it's like, that is conceptually grokkable within the con within the confines of a single function, right? So for me, it seemed much more natural to reason about things that way than thinking about these models that I'm inheriting from other people that I don't really understand. I that makes so much sense to me now that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it took me a long time to for that to make sense to me. So. <laughs> so that's great. So. It, you also studied AI there. I'm just wondering, are your views on you know strong AI versus kind of the the new machine learning is that is that sort of a similar way of of thinking to Lisp or or no? Well, I mean, my <laughs> I'm I'm old enough where things back then. I mean, what we were studying mostly were expert systems, and um, you know those are kind of out of vogue right now. Um, of course, we did study mutation and machine learning at that time. But I mean, the focus was on expert systems and, and again, modeling knowledge um, in a domain. Um, that was the idea. Um, and it didn't really play out, did it? And we're getting all these benefits from, and I, I think the future will be some sort of like um, munging between these ideas of expert systems and um, like black box machine learning algorithms that we can't really peer into. I think there's probably a future there. So I don't think that whole thread of AI is completely toast. But um, but yeah, I'm probably too antiquated to answer a question <laughs> about the current <laughs> state of AI. I, I have taken a, a couple weekend classes with TensorFlow, and I've got to say, um, pretty lost in it when I take the classes. I can get some stuff working, but yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm ill-equipped. Well, you, you definitely have uh, the Lisp background and the, the thinking, <laughs> I think. I don't know. Mm. We just have a, mm -hmm. a big heritage to AI, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, so g going into the, the masters in, in music, I, so you, you can combine um, I guess the the arts world and your on your computer skills. Did, is this what you did with music? And, and I guess I have more questions after that, but we'll just <laughs> focus on the music. Yeah, um, I think that's why I essentially got into that program. I got into is because I I was doing sort of generative art pieces in my undergrad. Um, uh, I was doing these very um, rudimentary exercises and combining aesthetic styles. You see that 
today with machine learning algorithms doing this very well, like applying a, a Van Gogh filter on a normal image and it looks very Van Gogh-ish, you know? Yeah. Um, in, a, in a way that Photoshop could never, you know, do in its sort of like simplified pass, you know? So I was, I was interested in that and I was doing generative work and um, at the end of the day, uh, I did end up sort of going more the direction of conventional um, songwriting and conventional like harmonies and, and whatnot because I I do like melodies and I do like harmony and uh, and uh, some of those things um, I like to have a lot of control over those things and so when you sort of like generate this stuff I never never had enough like hands-on getting my hands dirty in the harmony sort of control over it so I never went that deeply into generative music so so what what instruments did you or do you play um none very well uh <laughs> yeah I, I jam out some stuff on on a keyboard you know and I get some ideas on a keyboard but that's on a piano keyboard obviously but um that's about it it's mostly um yeah synthesizers uh, pen and paper composition, putting notes on a staff, seeing the seeing the relationships, all right there, you know. Um, I'm kind of a visual person, and so like the the piano keyboard is very visual, right? Unlike um, unlike a, a like the a fretless instrument like a violin, it's hard to see necessarily the relationships between the notes. Um, obviously, you don't even look at it when you're playing. So yeah. That those relationships you can see on a keyboard mean mean something to me. See that seeing those relationships on a staff a notation means something to me. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I respond to. Do you do you then um, I guess take that and put that in a like a data structure program form, like for Overtone? I guess have you? I think I've saw seen some of your work saying that you were using Overtone. Yeah, that piece you mentioned at the the Museum of Philography. Uh, we did an interactive installation, my, my uh, creative partner and I, Kim Burgess. Uh, we did an interactive installation where we took data from the Connect, um, uh, Xbox Connect, and we ran it through um, ran it through Clojure, and then we generated the, the sort of soundscape um, in real time in the room using Overtone based on sort of people's positioning in the room, their proximity to one another, that sort of thing. Cool. So could you move your arms then and have the, the soundscape change? Yeah, basically. Um, th they're, uh, right now we're in this like not so subtle place in, in um, sort of these uh, experiential art pieces where um, where a lot of pieces like kind of inspire um, people just to kind of play with the technology rather than like have an uh, an extra sensory experience. Meaning, like um, for example, like when you're at a a rock concert or something and you're really feeling the music you're not waving your hands because you're trying to manipulate something or trying you're you're moving because you're responding to the the artwork i mean you're responding to them emotionally you know mm -hmm. and 
So we tried to mask some of the sort of like direct corollaries between your movement and the audio in the space because of this like to imbue the space with a little bit more mystery and to discourage the idea of just trying to manipulate the sound effects because we're more interested in like creating an experience rather than just creating like a, a conversation with a technology if that makes sense yeah it does yeah yeah so so how does music get making music get transformed to making immersive art experiences for people <laughs> around the world well i mean sound is um and these yeah sound is one of these is maybe sound and smell or maybe the most immersive senses and i'm not making smell-o-vision anytime soon or anything like that because um, obviously the the ears never turn off right like you don't your alarm is audio based right um so if you have an alarm it, it wakes you up via sound so it's, it's always on 24 7 it's it's not just what's in front of you it's also what's behind you so it's 360 degrees 24 7 omnipresent right and so like this is an immersive um, medium to uh, sort of uh, place people within, right? And so that's the that's sort of the attraction to that medium over, say, just simply a visual experience, which is like, obviously, it's visual experiences. You can only point in one direction, right? And <laughs> uh, you can have it all around you, but then the person, once they turn their head, they're going to lose, you know, the other part of the room, right? So um, visualizations are are generally in my particular opinion less immersive um, and less abstract oftentimes we often try to reason to the eyes whereas we take in music through the ears and we don't like necessarily reason about why we like this stuff right yeah that's a good or point. or take this example for example all the all the modeling, for example, all the scientific modeling, all the graphs and charts that come out of like um, data analysis, they're all visual. They're all visual pieces. So um, because we communicate so much logical, uh, rational thought through the eyes um, and these models aren't necessarily conveyed through uh, beeps and uh, and uh, sounds, right? Because our ears don't aren't. aren't primarily used in that in that way yeah <laughs> that's a little abstract no 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 that, that's good I'm, I'm just I, I'm trying to visualize it all and, and you make a great point with the um, with the scientific visualizations which um, kind of leads me on another thread there's so many threads we can take with you but uh, that you're you're doing work now um, with next journal which I think has something to do with, with visualizations, right? Right. Yeah, these guys, are, these guys are brilliant, and I'm really lucky to be part of their team. Um, they're based in Berlin, and they've been working on this for a couple years, a few years now. Um, they uh, are working on, it's too simple to call it a notebook tool, but that's the first thing you see when you go to nextjournal.com. Um, you see this notebook style interface, like a Jupyter notebook. 
um, if you've ever used one of those. Um, but it masks a lot of the kind of astonishing uh, engineering happening behind the scenes because what the tool is really there for is to aid in um, data scientists uh, around issues related to scientific reproducibility. And so there's all these, there's this thing happening right now called this reproducibility crisis where um, if you have some sort of Python code that you wrote on your computer and you publish work on it, uh, your results in a Dead Tree magazine or something, in Nature magazine, and then I'm another scientist around the world and I'm looking at your results and uh, it's related, but I'd like to reproduce that. I mean, even if, even if I get in touch with you, um, even if you send me your code, imagine all the problems I'm going to have trying to write, run your Python code because you, you know, all the dependencies you have, or let's even start even more fundamental. You wrote everything on a Windows stack and I run Linux, right? And so all of a sudden, like, there are libraries that won't work, right, because they're not available for my operating system or whatnot. And it, it's, it's really, really hard to reproduce these data-driven experience, experiments between platforms. And we solve that right out of the box, uh, right out of the box. So um, we essentially version control all your code. So everything you write is completely version controlled. You can rewind, go back in time whenever you want. Um, but uh, on top of that, though, we also essentially version control your entire technology stack. And so um, when you build your environment, let's say based on a Ubuntu base, right, um, all the dependencies you install, the specific versions of dependencies you install, everything all the way up to the code that you write is completely uh, versioned. And then when you share that uh, article with another person, um, it's as simple as putting in a URL into a website, uh, into a browser address bar, right? It's as simple as that, and they can then also collaborate uh, or rerun your code or change parts of your code. And um, because uh, we are basing this on immutable uh, principles, um, when you start remixing my work, um, first of all, all the attribution is automatic because you're remixing my work. We already know where that came from. But second of all, you're not changing my original experiments, right? You are now branching this and doing your own thing. And of course, all that's version controlled. And the fundamental technology to kind of get this done is um, Docker and a full closure stack Datomic on the back end, Clojure, and Clojure Script on the front end. Sounds nice. Um, so the the reproducibility, uh, re I can't say that reproducibility. Um, yeah. I, from what I from what I hear in the data science community is like a real problem because you would you would, I think that the state of the art right now, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is is like a a, a Jupyter notebook, right? Like that's how people like share things. And yeah, maybe not state of the art, but the, the most common platform that people are using right now. Yes. Yeah. So, is there any? There's no version control with that at all, right? Well, um, you can upload your notebook to GitHub. Sure. You can, but then, but there's no version control of the dependencies that it runs on. 
So if you go and try to run, if you go to GitHub and grab a notebook right now, and there's all sorts of cool tools online to like grab Jupyter notebooks and run them in the browser. <laughs> the problem is you still have to like, if it depends on anything, you're going to have to install that. <laughs> and that can, and if this notebook is four years old, I, you know, your dependency might be deprecated like that. It depends on. Right. Yeah. And now, okay. Uh, now I have all this work I have to do to like try to find a comparable dependency or find that deprecated one or whatever. And that's, Oh, who wants to deal with that? I just want to run the notebook. <laughs> That's all I wanted. <laughs> so can anybody make a, a, a new post on this or do you have to be in a, like a scientific community? Yeah, we're in a, we're in private beta right now. Um, and we, uh, we definitely are like taking signups. Uh, it's kind of on a case by case basis, but honestly, um, by the time this airs, we um, will have a code probably nextjournal.com slash Cognicast. Um, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I can't I can't speak to it right now because like, by the time this airs, it might be a couple months. Um, but yeah, we'll have to put that in the show notes when, it, when we get updated. And then your, uh, the listeners could then have an invite code and they, they can get it into the private beta and play with it. We support Python right now we support Python Julia R JavaScript closure closure scripts I'm glad to hear the closure and closure script there mm-hmm. <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> of course so we, we've taken a, a a windy path to what you're doing now so you're you're working you're working there now um, yeah are you still uh, doing art? Yeah, um, it's so I worked full time as an artist for over a decade. I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, now I'm working pretty much full time in Next Journal, and um, yeah, art is a difficult hobby when you're serious about it uh, to sort of maintain. Um, so I still work with uh, the aforementioned partner, Kim Burgos. I still work with her. We have like a residency coming up, Signal Culture in upstate New York. And we are still doing some sort of interesting stuff around uh, digital technologies and society. So, so it, it's in line with a lot of the other work I've done before. And then in in my in my dream life, I mean, maybe sometime we'll get back to some of these uh, other more narrative projects that I have done in the past. Yeah, let's talk about some of the narrative projects um, that you've done, and I, I guess if you want to explain one of them and and why why you think the narrative form is important. Yeah, well, um, yeah, the the narrative form is definitely important because like it 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 offers so much to uh, so much sort of implicit knowledge. Uh, when we are transferring stories, offer some implicit knowledge when we transfer uh, information to one another. And yeah, they, that's one of the things about NextJournal that's interesting to me, for example, in the, in the notebook format. I mean, uh, Donald Knuth kind of 
laid this out when he was talking about literate computing and he, and he said, you know, um, programming is really about, it's really about writing code for other humans that hap- that happens to be executed by machines. Hmm. Right. So that's, you're not writing code for the machine, you're writing code for another person. And so that was part of his premise for his argument for literate computing, which is like, we need some prose around this. We need some narrative. It needs to go beyond comments in order for the other human to quickly grok and understand, um, you know, the larger story, the bigger picture behind this small piece of code that they're uh, that they're working on. So obviously, literate computing hasn't, you know, taken the world by storm. But you know, notebooks offer a way to to inherently do that, which is again part of my interest personally in next journal um, and then to answer your question though about like narrative projects in particular I eventually got to the point where I pretty much only worked on documentary work after I've done a number of of narrative shorts I've done uh, featurettes uh, which are like less than 60 minutes but greater than 45 um, and you know, I've, I've shot on 35 millimeter and done a lot of crazy stuff, uh, you know, in in these narrative productions. But ultimately, I love the documentary form because it's kind of the kind of the wild, wild west of, of cinema for me, at least. It's um, it's a genre that is growing in like the, the ways that people are expanding what a documentary is conceptually or what it could be. And I'm really interested particularly in uh, found footage and footage sourced from um, sourced from media outlets, so published footage, uh, remixing that footage uh, to provide sort of anchors and context in different time periods that are really alien to us. For, so for example, in my cyberspace and national security class, um, you know, these, these these kids, you know, are 18, 19, 20 years old, and um, they don't they don't understand, or they've never seen this footage of um, of the Bush administration talking about the reasons we invade Iraq, right? They've never seen that footage, and so when they talk about weapons of mass destruction that weren't there, like to see these people actually actually laying out this argument is kind of um, is kind of important because they that's one way to get them to teleport back to that time and understand a generation before them understand how we got to where we are today um, in our current political climate um, in a way that if I just kind of talk about it you know, it, it doesn't mean as much as just this grainy you know it's not grainy but it's it's obviously older footage from the early aughts you know and to them that's like a million years ago <laughs> you know in the, inter- in the internet time it was a million years ago <laughs> so I'm really interested in that style or using that sort of um, uh, using that sort of uh, material uh, in telling a story yeah so it made me think of um, when I went to your website there was another it, I don't know do you classify it as, as narrative the Jack and the Machine project yeah, I mean that. Um, that's interactive documentary. Um, still not 
complete, I can give a quick rundown of it. And that is a documentary about the life and times of Jack Tremell, who is the founder of uh, Commodore Computers. And of course, a lot of the audience will remember the Commodore 64. And um, it starts with his time uh, in Poland when he, uh, when the Germans invaded in World War II. And eventually he was part of the camp system and eventually got to the United States. And it's a, it's a really interesting human, re- uh, human interest story of course, a guy from that survived the Holocaust then to um, then to create a, a billion-dollar computer company, <laughs> right? That's kind of an astonishing leap on its own. But really, what it is is I'm piggybacking this story of like centralized and decentralized technologies on the back of that human interest story. And so, one of the things that I unearthed was this hollow earth number, the way that um, the Nazis machine processed him, like tracked him through the camp system um, and made sure that they're sort of you know, utilizing, because they had a lot of information on their labor force. Um, they needed a lot of labor because they're fighting a war on two fronts and the native labor force, of course, was occupied fighting. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, they used punch cards to track a lot of this uh, stuff, whether it be labor or whether it be supplies, or whether it be you know uh, bullets and armory, and um, on the human side though, tracking a person through the camp system is is where we start in these centralized structures. That same technology is the exact same technology that gets us at the just ten years before or um, five years before it gets us the social security system, of course, uh, social security in the United States wouldn't be possible without punch cards being, you know, tracking all of that information at one time of individual people and how much money they make. So going from these centralized systems of punch cards and mainframes to decentralized systems like uh, PCs in the, in the web, and then the pendulum swings, of course, back to centralized systems like siloed uh, platforms like Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's the idea is to get people that don't, think about these problems, thinking about these problems of like, you know, is, is it important to have a decentralized web? Um, most people have never really questioned that, right? Yeah, that's very relevant uh, mm-hmm. for today. I, there was a, a quote, um, the computers for the masses, not for the classes. <laughs> right, right. And it's so interesting, you know, Jack Jamel had this like, sort of populist PC Silicon Valley style about, you know, delivering this low cost personal computer to the masses, not the classes, except for like, he had just, he had nothing in common with Silicon Valley, you know, in his, in his lineage, right? He's a Holocaust survivor, but he did believe, I have uh, some interviews with him and he did believe that if information was out there and information was available, that um, that things might have turned out differently in 1939, 1940, 1941 for the Jewish people, right? As they were being uh, liquidated from cities and into camps. Yeah. Yeah. There, kind of grim. Yeah, it it, it, <laughs> it it is, but it it just it brings back that you know what we what we do as computer programmers and 
and how we architect how that information flows um, you know that's really powerful and we like you're saying we've seen the the pendulum swing back and forth <laughs> on right. that yeah um, so yeah I don't know <laughs> where it's gonna go <laughs> And we don't know, and there probably is no perfect place for it to sit, right? But like having that kinetic energy, making sure, making sure people are informed enough to, 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 to ascertain what's happening, um, I think is important. People with large. Yeah, yeah that, that's what I, I really like about um, the work that you and, and other artists do that provoke. Um, you know, thoughts of what what we're doing with our technology. Um, I think there was a another art piece that I, I saw from, I think it was a woman artist, that was taking a piece of gum from like under park benches and then mm -hmm. extracting the DNA yes. and then yes. recreating <laughs> what they looked like. Yes, uh, they, uh, <laughs> like with 3D printing, like printing uh, masks of their faces, essentially, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Quite astonishing. And the, all this biohacking that, the, um, that's in the art world right now, I mean, boy, if you, if you overturn that stone and looking at what's happening with what artists are doing in biology, wow, it's, it's some crazy, crazy stuff happening out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And but it's important. I think it's important to explore that and <laughs> yeah, and think about it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's very cool. So, so what are you excited about um, lately? And like in, in technology or art or co combining the two? Hmm. Well, I mean, I live in New York, and uh, I work for a company in Berlin, and so I'm over there on occasion, and so I'm course really lucky to have so much access to so much culture um you know i, I what excites me is still though these like these questions surrounding digital the the digital order as it is uh questions around for example an easy one for me is like visualizing the internet so the internet is really hard to talk about for lay people, uh, for people that aren't into technology. Uh, it's really hard to talk about because it's invisible, right? Like they don't ever touch the internet. And it creates this, this very difficult sort of conceptual, um, too big to hold in your mind thing that touches everybody's life right now in such incredibly deep ways. Um, Artists and technologists and, and scientists, um, we, I think we need better ways to make these things sort of tangible to the layperson. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of like uh, weaponry in the sense that um, the, the further away like the pain is and the, of, of, for example, conflict and, and war, um, the, the more desensit the more difficult it is to imagine like this suffering across the ocean. And so, for example, um, it's it's hard to get people excited about 
policy around drone strikes, right? Even though it's like, it's taxpayer funded and it's something that we all together are contributing to and to have an actual opinion on it is, is very difficult because it's so intangible and so removed. And I mean, it can be something as gruesome as that or it can be also something as simple as you know, visualizing how knowledge flows through the, uh, through the internet, how information is shaped on the internet, these things that are um, quickly becoming the currency of our time. But unlike, unlike money, we can't hold it. We don't have like a number for it. We don't have like, a, it's, it's so, it just slips through our hands like sand. And there's a lot of room here for exploration and improvement and communication um, and representation. Yeah, I, I think in, in uh, especially in in the news, trying to communicate these these things that are becoming more and more important of you know your security <laughs> around the internet. Like, why why do you need it to have people understand that they have to understand yeah. how it how it works in the first place? You yeah, know? otherwise it's just magicians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you kind of touched upon, for example, privacy. Uh, you kind of like alluded to it there, and it's it is one of those things of like, well, yeah, if the government or the or the corporation goes to your house, you'd have a problem with it. But if they go through your intimate communications online, I have nothing to hide. So why would it matter? You know, and like that that analogy is not resonating with people, and there are. It's because there are problems with that that sort of correlation, but um, but there are other ways to communicate sort of some of these sort of issues in a way, some of the trade-offs at least I should say, some of the trade-offs because I think it's important to imbue people with enough knowledge to make sense of the trade-offs they're making. So how would you approach that problem okay. as an artist? <laughs> just, just just I mean you don't have to come up with something, but like what what I mean you have this you you want to help communicate this like what what's what's a kind of the first step in... oh man <laughs> <laughs> um well i think part of the first step is like coming to it from sort of uh, a humanitarian uh, humanities perspective and so using, instead of thinking about the problem technically, you think about the problem culturally. Um, and so take like a very abstract problem like um, uh, that's related to all this, but uh, like, like ownership of knowledge, right? Um, obviously, open source, for example, has, has changed sort of the conversation, moved the needle on like, how long copyright should last and and um, also what is ownership what is public ownership what is private ownership and so um, one of the ways to move that is like open source is a cultural touchstone that some people kind of get and that's been extremely powerful but more than that is maybe remix culture right and so and so if if remix culture through hip hop or remix culture through music or like uh, remix culture through like um, visual art where I'm taking, um, you know, known culturally owned works of art 
Like we all sort of own this as a culture and I'm reappropriating this and using this in different contexts. And you're telling me that should be illegal, right? Well, people, people respond kind of negatively to that, right? And so those are the touchstones to get them to, to, to communicate why like knowledge ownership is important and that can affect policy at say like universities or corporations you know should the corporation should um should the food grown in our ground um that we all consume should that seed be owned by monsanto right should that seed be owned by a single entity or should it be a public good i mean that's really hard to answer but like what is easier for people to think about is image appropriation, things like that, but they're related. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that was a really hard question. I those are really hard questions. Uh, so, what an artist can do to yeah. do this. Well, and, and it's, it, I guess it's, it's not just visual and, and, and uh, other art, but I, I think authors also can explore this. Um, some some of the when you were talking about ownership uh, mm-hmm. and who owns things, it made, made me think of um, you know DNA now. And, oh my gosh! Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, and, and an author had explored this in, in one of his books that I read. But I mean, so who who owns owns your DNA? Because it's just data at the end of right. it. Do, right. Does it need to be copyrighted? Like if you if you could clone people, are you copyrighted? Like can somebody just clone you? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a wild world yeah. that we're, we're heading into. <laughs> and it would be nice if we had language around this to, to talk about this before the technology sort of comes to a head. But my guess is like many other things, we'll have to deal with this after the fact, after this technology becomes manifestly all around us. Then we'll have to be like, okay, wait, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just crazy stuff. Um, so so we've been like all over the place talking about things, and I feel like mm-hmm. I could talk to you for just hours, but I want to give you some space that, you know, you can touch on um you know, anything we haven't covered or um, something you want to dive into more deeply? Uh, well, I mean, not exactly. The, the, the things that I'm, I guess, also interested in that are probably more related to the audience as well, or like um, I'm, I'm interested in, um, in sort of uh, digital archaeology as well. Uh, I'm interested, or anthropology, I should say. And so, like, this this thing around older technologies, like, I already mentioned the Commodore 64, but also um, just the the narrative, for example, around programming languages. Uh, one of the things that I already touched upon is, like, OOP. And, like, there's a time when OOP, of course, in the 90s, of course, when it was just taking, you know, the world of programming by storm. And now we see, you know, the pendulum swing and different sort of approaches are coming, um, coming to the fore. But one of the things that I'm, I guess, also interested in, in functional programming and in general 
uh, is how it relates to the arts. And so um, this long thread, this long historical thread that sometimes you see in OOP, but you definitely see it in functional programming where the declarative style um, is this style that a lot of uh, art pieces are, digital art pieces, I should say, since the since the 60s all the way today have like sort of leveraged um, in order to uh, in order to kind of figure it out as they go along they kind of it always kind of reminds me of REPL driven development where like artists oftentimes don't exactly know where they're going they can't model the world before they get there right they they can say what they want to do they can declare it they say like this is what I'm doing I'm, I'm Jackson Pollock and I'm making a painting um, that's kinetic in style and I'm doing this through, um, I'm going to do this motion, right? But I can't plan it all out. I'm going to do this like physical motion to get the splatters on the canvas in such a way that, um, that I deem uh, as art, right? But, um, but he can't necessarily plan and model the whole world beforehand and so sort of like a REPL-driven development, sort of like this exploration on the, on, on the line there, on the REPL uh, read line, like that's, that's what artists do as well. And so I'm interested in the history of like arts and computer science and specifically like artists using declarative style um, as the way that they go about uh, exploring uh, digital systems. Wow. Uh, is there an example of a declarative artist? Well, um, sure. You know, the, um, I, given this talk twice about uh, called Aesthetics and Narrative, one was at the Conj and then a couple of years later, maybe a year later, I gave it um, at ITAKE Unconference in, um, in Bucharest, Romania. And... Um, like I cover three different pieces in in that talk, and one of the ones that really struck me uh, when I was in the AI track all those years ago um, was this piece by Harold Cohen called Aaron. And if you haven't heard of Aaron, um, Aaron was this painter bot uh, that he started developing in the mid in mid century, and I think it started in. I can't do it off the top of my head. I think it started in Fortran. Might might have been might have been something else. He he eventually went to C, and then he eventually went to Lisp, right? And unfortunately, that code is not open source. So um, what we do have is a lot of his talks about like that transition from C to Lisp and what that bought him in terms of creating a a bot that can make paintings that are expressive and um, have some sense of, of latent creativity in them. Like, like there is a creative soul almost behind this mm -hmm. machine. And um, the, the paintings are, are quite excellent. They're all uh, basically um, human form paintings, uh, but there are other objects in the, in the frame and everything like that. And yeah, Harold's, um, sort of exploration of uh, a transition, I should say, 
to the sort of like the declarative form, like composing things together that weren't sort of preordained to be composed together just because they are functional. They can be right. Um, that he claims, of course, offered him quite a bit more expressivity. Um, and therefore Aaron, the, the painter, more expressivity. And, um, you know, one of the jokes about Harold Cohen is he, he's going to be the first artist with a posthumous, uh, exhibition because, uh, Aaron can still paint. Uh, unfortunately Harold passed away a few years ago, but, um, Aaron can still produce and still make work with Harold's code and it can still be, um, quite unique and quite, uh, compelling even without him. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll have to put in the show notes um, some links to your presentation about that okay. and also his his code. Or the, yeah, the, super. I guess not the code since it's closed source, but the... His site, though. He has a lot, he site. talks a lot about it on his site. Um, yeah, he gave a number of talks on it. Yeah, that's great. Um, this has been so fascinating. I, you just have such a, um, a rich experience um, in your background, Thanks. through arts uh, and technology, and then um, I guess your drive to, to communicate that with the with the rest of the world, um, I just think is is fantastic. So thank you for being on our show. Oh, thanks. Yeah, someday I'll get it right, and I'll actually <laughs> say what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so uh, we do have a traditional final question on uh, the show and that's uh, if you have any advice for the listeners it's, it's one of my favorite parts too because I collect it <laughs> and, and, and your life is getting better uh, every interview I hope Call so great advice <laughs> <laughs> okay um, yeah so uh, I'm a practicing Buddhist and so of course I get lots of great advice all the time <laughs> They seem, uh, everybody that lectures that's a Buddhist always seems to have the perfect advice um, that you're supposed to check out yourself. But you always get these things kind of rattling in your head. Um, and lately, so I'll just go with sort of like the last thing that I heard that has been circulating and hasn't quite been done, going, been processed completely. So I'll stumble through this. Um, yeah, the... So Buddhists like to talk a lot about suffering, <laughs> and it's not necessarily a pessimistic thing. It might sound pessimistic, you know, to Western ears, but it's it's more about like uh, as you approach, as you try to alleviate that, you just you examine it, you know. And um, and I can bring this back to engineering. So uh, one of the things that I was told recently is that suffering is the distance between your perception of reality and reality itself. And so um, the goal of the Buddha's course is to align the mind with the trueness of reality, with reality with like a capital R, right? And once those things get in, in line, of course, you can, you can actually eliminate suffering. That's part of the, that's the argument, right? And you think about it like, like an engineering perspective. Um, you know, if, when, we, when we're struggling through a problem, it can be really painful. Um, but it can be even more painful if, like, for example, we told boss man that we'd get that to him in two days, and then we explore the problem, and the reality is the problem, it takes way more time than two days, right? And so now, like, although, like, this is a hard problem, and it, it creates a lot of, 
you know, burdens. Um, now it's even much more difficult because now you understand the true reality of the problem. And if only you had your understanding of reality aligned with the trueness of what is actually there in the code base, if only you did that and you could have told Bossman, actually this will be done in two weeks, not in two days, um, all this would have been alleviated. You know, and so the I guess the advice is to um, continue to try to step outside of like uh, um, guessing and 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 just um, try to step outside of guessing and sort of like what's driving your ego and like what's driving sort of like the conditions around you and all the chaos and all the other pressures and try to step outside and examine the problems in front of you for what it is, regardless of everything else around you. And try to just understand that problem outside of yourself and outside of, of the conditions uh, that you uh, are facing at that time. That's great advice. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also very difficult. It takes a lot. So maybe maybe a little impractical and esoteric, but uh, when you get it, when it you get it, you can actually alleviate some of that, some of your problems. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to work on that. <laughs> so thank you very much. Um, again, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, yeah, it's been have, a real pleasure. Yeah, I hope, I hope to have you on again so you can uh, talk more about um, you know your your work. But I think we're going to wrap it up here. So um, thank you, and thanks to everyone listening. This has been the Cognicast. been listening to the Cognacast. The Cognacast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We're here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest this week was David Schmoody, whom you can find on Twitter at at dschmoody, which is at D-S-C-H-M-U-D-D-E. Our host this week was Karen Meyer, who is at Gigasquid on Twitter. Episode cover art is by, well, me, Russ Olson. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is by Cognitech's own Ben Camphouse, who produces music as Pattern Shift. Look for it on any of the major streaming services. I'm Russ Olson, and thanks so much for listening.